I'm Sharon Batters, and you are listening to a resource produced by Mark Inc. Ministries. Visit markinc.org, M-A-R-K-I-N-C.org, where you can find many free resources just like this one, designed to offer help and hope to hurting people. Today, I'm inviting you to listen in on my conversation with Susanna Musser and Heidi Scott as Susanna shares her journey about the death of her adopted son, Tommy. Susanna is the wife of Joe and the mother of, and I'm going to say it, 14 children. On her blog, theblessingofverity.com, Susanna writes, We stepped out of the cultural boat because Jesus called us to do that, and we have found that there is solid ground under our feet out there. As Susanna's story unfolds, I know that you're going to understand that every day for Susanna and Joe is a huge challenge of enormous needs that force them to test that statement. Heidi Scott, who is here with us as well, is a licensed professional counselor and owner of Morning Star Counseling in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. I want to welcome both of you. So I am eager to get started on our conversation, and I'm eager for our listeners to get to know you better, Susanna, and to hear the story that you have for us today. I know that it's not an easy one to talk about, and I know that people might say, why in the world would you do this? Why would you go back into this kind of pain? But I know because of my own life and the loss of our son, Mark, that we want to see God redeem the pain. And you're willing to do it so that someone coming behind you can experience the kind of comfort that you have experienced. So thank you for your willingness to go back into that darkness. So why don't we start out with you telling us a little bit about your family? Well, we, as Sharon said, we have a really large family. We call it supersized family. We homeschool most of our children. Twelve of our children came to us through birth and then uh, one through adoption, and one we're in the process of adopting right now. One of the things that makes our family unique is that we have four children with life-altering diagnoses. makes life interesting every day. We were pretty ignorant of the world of disability until our 10th child came along. Her name is Verity. She was born with Down syndrome and a severe heart defect. She was sort of our entrance into the world of disability. Not long after Verity was born, we found out that children with Down syndrome in Eastern Europe and other parts of the world were badly mistreated and neglected because of the disability that they had, and that broke our hearts. From there, God led us to adopt a little girl with Down syndrome from Bulgaria. She had been severely neglected on the top floor for orphanage for almost 10 years. She came home to us weighing 10 and a half pounds at nine and a half years old, um, made tremendous progress. And God used her adoption and my blogging the whole story to advocate for the children she left behind her in that orphanage in Pleven, Bulgaria. Now about 70 of other the other older children with special needs are home and loving families because of that. And massive changes came to the orphanage as a result also. That, the whole blogging side of things ended up impacting our family in a, in a greater way than I ever could have known when I began blogging, more as a personal way of connecting with people that we knew, letting them know what was going on, and as a way of journaling the journey. As this story begins, we had somewhat rashly, as we look back, but um, we could clearly see the leading of God um, going back again for one of the children that Katie had left behind. He was older than Katie um, by six years. He was 16 when we brought him home and had pretty significant disabilities. And this is going to be his story in our family. Well, um, Heidi, you and I had talked, you're the one that introduced me to Susanna, and you had shared that there are so many avenues we could go with Susanna's story. So why did you, the two of you, decide that this was the part that would be the the place to begin? I believe Susanna's story will resonate with a lot of different people. And this is probably one of her most difficult journeys in in her her life and the life of her family. Um, So I thought this was something that really could impact a lot of people dealing with not only grief, but trauma and, and, and adoption just hits on so many different areas that a broad range of people could really relate to. Yes. And I, in light of that, I really want to encourage you, the listener, to listen closely 
as we talk, because in my conversations with Susanna, there's just so much truth and help in her words. Uh, You may not be in a place where she is or have experienced the loss of a child or even adopted a child or special needs, but there are plenty of people in your life who have, and her story is going to help you better understand what their needs are and how you can come alongside of them. And it really is going to take you behind the scenes of very private pain. So listen closely as Susanna is talking. So Susanna, how did Tommy come into your home? You kind of mentioned that, but what um, is your adoption story related to Tommy? Well, he would never have been adopted by us unless God had done a few miracles. We're, like I said, a very large family. We're a middle income Um, Those are considered two strikes against us in some people's minds. We were expecting a baby during the the process of adopting Tommy. When we brought him home, we had actually, we took the newborn with us. He was five weeks old when we got to Bulgaria and six weeks old when we brought Tommy home. He just rode around with us on our our trip. Uh, Also 11 other children at home. It's kind of hard as I look back and try to remember what was I thinking I, I can remember just this strong hold that this little boy had on me. He had this enormous, bright smile. It was like looking down into a cesspool and seeing a diamond. What did the child have to smile about? He was left in a bed, neglected. Many times the, during the weekends, the children weren't, their diapers weren't changed or they weren't fed. The caregivers didn't know their names. They were basically starved, starved of sensory simulation and connection with people. So, of course, that impacted all the children. Many of them didn't grow. They all looked like babies or toddlers, even though they were, you know, some of them even teenagers. So Tommy himself was significantly impacted. He did have an underlying disability. We never did find out what that was. But he was nonverbal, kind of like a 5 to 11-month-old. He required total care. He was 16 year old, years old when we brought him home, but he was wearing a size 4. But really, when I think back on Tommy now, what I want to remember the most was he had this rare, gentle, shining, affectionate spirit. He connected with me. He bonded to me with, within a year. He learned to say one word, and that was mama. So even though after bringing him home, the situation deteriorated with his health, and we were just plunged into a nightmare of total care. Uh, he, re- he stopped eating. He developed this life-altering diarrhea, which we couldn't take him anywhere. No diaper would contain it. We put him, kept him on a trash bag. Um, I spent most of my time cleaning up vomit or diarrhea, trying to get him to eat or being in a hospital. Um, and this is with a newborn and 11 other children and homeschooling. So life as we knew it really ended about a month after we brought him home. You, um, everything you're describing, you said several times, I don't know what I was thinking or what was I thinking. Did the people who know you and love you and support you th- and enthusiastically embrace the idea of you adding Tommy to your family? Yes. When we adopted Katie, we did not ask. Um, when we considered whether or not to commit to Tommy, there was, some, there was a big reason that we went ahead. The first one was we went to the leaders of the church and sat down and had a conversation with them and just laid everything out before them. And they said, absolutely, yes. They asked a few questions. They said, yes, we have your back. This is clearly your calling from God. The other was that Tommy was going to age out of his ability to be adopted. He was going to be turning 16 during the adoption process, and we were in a race against time. If, he would, if we would not reach a certain place in the adoption process by his 16th birthday, we would not be able to bring him home. And we knew what that means in Bulgaria. He would end up in an adult mental institution. I won't go into that, but anyone who wants to Google adult mental institutions in Eastern Europe, you will be horrified at what you see. So we had, we had that on just a tremendous uh, motivation to bring that child home. He was doing well in the orphanage. He was eating. He was actually 
far ahead of where Katie was when we brought her home. She would be become upset if she was held, moved, or touched, whereas Tommy was in a much better emotional place. And we could sort of picture caring for the two side by side. The, the thing that we were most concerned about before bringing him home, I laugh about this now, was he had this, when he would become very overstimulated, he would uh, start to flap his hands and then he would let out this um, enormous pterodactyl screech. And we worried about that because our daughter Verity, just a few years old at that time, would melt down at sudden loud noises. So we had some concern, how is this going to work? We did not have an enormous house and they were all going to be home. Looking back, that seems laughable that that was our biggest concern. But um, we, we had some experience under our belts and had gone relatively easily with Katie bringing her home, fitting her into the family, and her needs became absorbed with everything else. And we just never foresaw, you know, what was going to happen. No one could have foreseen. In fact, I say to people now, the only way to avoid unforeseen disaster after adopting a child with special needs is to say no to special needs adoption. So you need to have your eyes open to the risks and not base your decisions on best case scenarios. During this difficult year that you're describing where health issues arose with Tommy, were there times that you questioned your decision to adopt him and you being equipped enough to handle what God had had placed in, in your house? There was tremendous pressure on me from both inside of me and from the outside of me as being a public family to prove that I could handle what we had said we could handle. So I was not in a good place emotionally to handle that amount of stress. Our marriage was struggling. I would say our marriage was probably maybe six or seven, but the pressure on the marriage that we were experiencing was, you know, over a 10. I went through a time of grieving for the family that we had been and did not like the family that we had become. I began to feel more and more hopeless, but the worst by far of all the things that I went through was the feeling of having been abandoned by God. We were not seeing all the marvelous and miraculous provisions that we had seen in the years previous to that, and I began to question, had we misheard God? Are we failing to trust Him enough? We knew that we were reliant on Him continuing to provide for us to make all of this work out. And when everything tanked, I literally felt like we were swirling the drain. I tend to see things in pictures, and I just had this picture of our family swirling the drain. At that low time, the voices of those who hated us were louder in my head than the voice of God. I could hear the voices of those saying, you took on too much. What did you think you were doing? You have too many children. And those were the thoughts that were going round and round in my head. I looked around me at how painfully not working it was every day. And I privately agreed with those who actually hated us the most. However, the situation kind of improved a little bit. We figured out the diarrhea. That was, it's, it's hard to describe how life-altering that could be. But I sort of feel like I missed our oldest son's wedding because it was just overshadowed by the diapering and the, and the care and making sure the trash bag and backup clothing. And it just, it's kind of hard to describe exactly unless you've been through like a really intense caregiving when you are the primary caregiver. But things had sort of started to turn and we were all beginning to feel a little more hopeful, a little more sense of well-being. Hope was on the way, help was on the way. We were going to be getting nursing in home for him. Um, so we started to feel like things were looking a little brighter, although I I still was very much struggling because I, I would have to say that I had not heard from God. The only thing that was my comfort during those months was knowing that Jesus on the cross had said to God, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why have you forsaken me? Knowing that he felt those feelings that I was feeling and that he was permitted to say that to God gave me permission also to say that to God. And I kind of held on to that. That was what I held on to, knowing that Jesus had not been abandoned by God, but he was feeling those feelings. I've heard that said by many people in the work that I do over the years in 
the deepest, darkest times of their lives that they have felt that God was silent. And, and I've kind of heard the saying and, and repeated the saying that during the test, the teacher is silent. And, and I, I think that's true. And I, one of those questions that I want to ask God about when I get to heaven, I don't understand it, but that is something that I've heard before. And I like, Susanna, that you, even in the, the loneliness and feeling isolated, that you did not turn your back and run away the other way from the Lord, but you were continuing to run to Him with the cry of your soul. And because a lot of people, they feel guilty if they question or doubt, or it must be me, it must have been something that I did. And I know in my own grief journey, I've said that God gave me the gift of wrestling because I needed to reconcile his sovereignty with his love, and I did not know how to do that. You know, it was like the theology was all in place, but where was it in my heart and in my everyday life? And the wrestling, I do believe it was a gift because there are so many people who need to know he's not afraid of our questions. He invites our questions, but he already knows them. And he's a father who's saying, let me... Let me help you. And so going toward him with hands open, or maybe pounding on his chest with hands clenched, but still going toward him, it's desperate, yes. I was really hanging by a thread during that whole period of physically getting three to four hours of sleep at night for almost a year. And just the constant demand of three or four or five people needing me urgently all at once every waking moment of the day. Um, It was more of, Lord, save me. That was really all literally that I I could think this thought to God. I didn't have the leisure time or the margin for long prayers or it was was really just a cry of desperation. Susanna, you mentioned a couple of minutes ago about the people that hated you. And and I I think it might be helpful just before we go into the, the next story, just for you to talk briefly about the people that hated you. Who are you describing? We have a lot of strikes against us, so to speak, in the minds of a certain group of people. I guess you would call them like online trolls, adoption haters. So big family, Christian family, homeschooling, adoption. And putting all those things together seems to bring out this lethal sort of hatred. We are certainly far from being the only families who have been the target of that. And being somewhat public with the blogging, We experienced trolling, what's called trolling, just hateful remarks. And I was far too vulnerable ever to have read any of them, but I could still repeat to you word for word some of the things that I heard and saw. Um, So it it was just because we were out there and we were a really big target, hard to miss. It had to be hard at times to continue sharing your life on that blog. But the payoff if that's the right word, is so incredible, exponential for the families that stepped up because of your story. So, And just being honest kind of sets the pace that others then feel free that they can also be honest. And I I care far more about openness and honesty and adoption than I care what other people think of me at this point. (laughs) I, I think anyone who takes the journey you're on would have to have that mindset if they're going to survive for real. Yeah. We're, we're very free with saying what we think in ways that we shouldn't, I think. We don't know what we're talking about a lot of yes. times. So. And my children actually could see that better than I could, where I felt vulnerable to the criticism, and it would just stick in my mind and swirl around in there, and I think, maybe they're right. This doesn't seem to be working. My children would say, Mom, they don't even know us. Why are they? Why do they feel free to say this stuff about us? They don't even know us. Exactly. <laughs> so they had their heads screwed on straight. They weren't as vulnerable to it as I was with my, you know, the place that I was in. Right, right. Well, what you've described uh, so far with Tommy is excruciatingly painful. But that wasn't the end of the story. Something tragic happened. Can you tell us about that? We had, as I said, turned a corner. In our family, things were looking brighter. It was the summer, 14 months after Tommy had joined our family. We were beginning to find our equilibrium. And like I said, help was on the way with nursing care. In fact, several nurses had come into our home and trained to take care of him. We're just waiting for that to be set up. As a thank you gift to our older children who had sacrificed so much that previous year to help things to work, 
we had sent them on, um, we had sent them away for a week to a cabin, a cabin that their family had enjoyed. So I was at home with all the younger children, the most needy children. My husband was at, uh, at work and I had the idea, let's all go to our favorite Creek this today. So, um, set all the children on their chores, uh, went to detach Tommy's feeding uh, bag, realized it had leaked. He's smelly like the formula. I thought I'll just pop him in the bath here. And downstairs bathtub was the one he'd play in. It had a hole down near the bottom. And so it never could, you know, get very much water in it. It was always draining out. It was about two inches from the bottom. So I'd run him a little water and given him his toys and was busily gathering all the things that we were going to need for our trip to the creek, making sure there were diaper bags were stocked with diapers and everything. And one of our sons ran to me and said, Mom, Tommy. And I could hear it in his voice. And I ran. And my son had... I pulled him up out of the water. The water was running full blast and he was on his back. My son had turned off the water and pulled him up to the side, but I could see right away that he was gone. Something in me just knew that he was gone. I pulled him out and I tried to do CPR and I yelled for the phone and someone brought me the phone and they talked me through CPR and I did my best, but all the time inside I knew that he was gone. And... I couldn't believe that it was happening. It did not seem real. Then how can this, my brain would not take it in. How could this be real? This can't be real. How could this fit into anything that I had known? And then things just happened very fast and it didn't seem fast at the time. It seemed like an eternity. Where where are they? Where are they? It seemed to take them forever. It probably wasn't that long. And then they worked over him and tried to get him to breathe. And they actually had to ask me to step aside because it was so traumatic. And clearing all the children out of the area. And it's hard to remember exactly in all the order. But I know there were a few things that made a big impression on me. One of them was the police officer who was there standing in the kitchen was a believer. And I was saying something about, this isn't why we brought him home. This isn't what we brought him home for. And he came over to me and said, listen, God already knew this was going to happen. And that's all he said. But there were these these little points of time that uh, this truth was spoken to me. I know that God knew that I needed to hear this truth spoken to me at different times. Um, later in that interminable day, it was like a nightmare. I was sitting on the recliner with our daughter, Katie, little adopted girl, Katie. Others can't really care for her because she has reactive attachment disorder. So I kept her with me. Others were caring for the other children. And I just sat there rocking Katie the whole day. Our pastor and his wife had come to be with us during that time and they had to leave. And I remember it was Jenny she has a strong Chinese accent. She came over and she just took my face in her hands and tilted it up. And she said, God is sovereign. Do not take responsibility for what he did. And again, like that got all the way through. I'm not saying what I did with it, but it did get all the way through. That was my biggest struggle immediately was I was just, I was devastated by the, the fact that this was a preventable death. He had divided, he had died a preventable death on my watch. Susanna, were you ever able to determine what happened with Tommy in the tub? As far as we can determine the investigation that was done and so on, we think that he lay down on his back and pushed the faucet up to full blast with his feet. And we have also been told that uh, children with a developmental delay um, don't have the natural reflexes um, that other children would have, so that it probably happened very, very quickly. Susanna, I know that uh, you really struggled with what happened, feeling responsible for what happened to him. But in one of our conversations, you mentioned that placing him in that tub where the water was draining out 
So it was never more than a couple of inches to you was as safe as placing him on a blanket under a tree because he was like a five-month-old. Right. Developmentally, he didn't understand the cause and effect. He had no interest in the faucet. He didn't understand that it had to do with the... So it was, I guess, what you would call, humanly speaking, it was a fluke that 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 specific, you know, those specific events happened in a specific time in a specific way. Susanna, I really appreciate what your pastor's wife said to you, that God is sovereign, don't take responsibility for what he did, and that your response was, in a way, you tucked it away. Uh, you tucked away that truth. How did that help you or, or make your journey worse in the days and weeks that followed, thinking about God's sovereignty and your own responsibility that you were carrying? For a long period of time, I was just in a place of self-condemnation and self-blame. What I did with those words at the time that people were speaking to me, reminding me of God's sovereignty over life and death, was nothing they say feels true. They're just trying to make me feel better. I know God is sovereign, but this just feels like the most tragic mistake. How could this fit into anything that I knew? I had actually blogged, blogged some of my, th- my thoughts that I was thinking, the self-blame, and I want to read some of them. Uh, this was actually, I wrote these a month after he died. What was this for? What sin was this for? Was this because I didn't trust him enough? I'm so sorry, Tom, Tom, we failed you. This was not what we brought him home for. If he was still in Pleven, he would at least be alive. Nothing about this could possibly ever be anything but bad. It's horribly bad for so many reasons on every level. Bad, bad, bad. We brought Tommy home to take care of him and help him live, not to bury his dead body in the ground. What kind of mother? Not a good mother. Mothers like me shouldn't be allowed. I'm a mommy. Mommies take care of their babies when their babies need them. There's good mother, and there's this, and they can't possibly go together. Even good isn't good enough. Nothing less than perfect is good enough. I wanted to love Tommy perfectly, and I failed him in the most colossal way. I remember hearing about a school bus driver who accidentally backed over a child, and the child died. I remember asking Joe, how could you possibly go on living with yourself after that? And now here I am, and there's nothing I can do about it. There's preventable, and there's unpreventable. This is called preventable. My child died a preventable death on my watch, and nothing anyone says can change that reality. There's a big black F on the inside of me that will never go away for the rest of my life. I will never be able to forgive myself. I'm a failure as a mom and as a human being. Those are devastating, devastating thoughts, and yet I think that listeners are are thinking, yes, that's how I feel. That's how I have felt. So do you still feel all of those things? Or are you in a place where you're able to make sense out of some of those thoughts? What I say now is if if it wasn't for my counselor, Heidi, and my husband, there were others too, but mostly my husband and Heidi being in my face, saying the true things to me over and over again that I needed to hear, I'm not sure I would have made it. That's not an exaggeration. I was in a very black place for a very long time. I thought of it as messy grieving. It was complicated grieving. I had grieved losses. You know, I would have had no self-blame, no sense of failure. I'd lost a dear grandmother and others, but this was messy. And I didn't I, I, got, I was exhausted by it. I cried every day for the first six months. I, I got so that I was impatient with myself for the, this emotional burden that I was carrying around. I was tired of being the person that was grieving. I was tired of being the wife that was always sad and grieving. Just got impatient with it. It's, it was just exhausting. I wanted so much to be like Job and to suffer in a godly way. And it was also painful to me to realize I'm not Job. And that took that was a while in coming. I tried so, so hard <laughs> to be like Job. You might um, be more like Job than you think. <laughs> <laughs> 
the hardest part for me was the spiritual wrestling. I would say that it was it was disorienting. Things that I had always assumed to be true. It seemed like everything was just up in the air and I was floating somewhere around and it was terrifying to someone who had always been very sure of what was up and what was down and what was right and what was not and could have taught Sunday school classes on the attributes of God. Just to have all of that be floating around and feeling so disoriented by that. So at first I felt terrible guilt, um, self-blame. I felt that this had to be punishment for something. What was it? And even in my subconscious, it was casting around for some reason. If I would remember some little sin, I think maybe it was because of that. Before I would even consciously stop the thought and realize, what, you know, what, where, where is this coming from? I didn't even know I believed this stuff about God. I would have said, I don't believe that. But this, the belief in the sovereignty of God never left me. That was really the only belief about God that was that held true the whole way the whole way through. They always knew that. And after the heaviest and and most difficult part of the grieving was passed, I wasn't crying every day. There were days that I didn't cry. I began more to struggle with feeling resentment. I felt targeted. It felt like every detail of that trauma had been specifically designed to inflict the most possible hurt. I mean, he could have been hit by a drunk driver. Um, I could think of any other scenarios that would have been easier to deal with, although painful. But eventually, I became, and I didn't even want to admit it for a long time, I remember Heidi asking me, sometimes people feel angry with God. Um, Have you felt angry with God? And I didn't think I really did quite yet. (laughs) It might have been denial. I didn't want to admit that I was angry with God, but I did feel very, I felt like he had betrayed our trust. I was still feeling utter silence and abandonment from him. So all of this ended up coming to the question, was I ever really his child to begin with? I couldn't imagine doing to my child what I felt that God had done to me. And I, this mental picture formed in my head of us embarking on that adoption process with Tommy and saying, God, we're going to jump and we're trusting that you're going to be there to catch us. Like a little child would stand high up on the stairs and the parents down there with their arms open saying, jump, I'll catch you. And the child jumps and the parent steps aside and the child rolls into the fire. And that's, that was this picture I couldn't shake. At one point I shared that with our oldest son who is then married. And he said, Mom, you have the wrong mental picture. I think you need to replace your mental picture. That helped enough to loosen that paradigm, change my paradigm, my thinking. But the spiritual spiritual wrestling really continued pretty much for about nine months, I would say, till I I could see myself coming to the end of the black tunnel. And coming out into the light and I could look back and see the black tunnel receding into the distance and then of course since then it's been it's been a long process I'm not as far as I thought that I would be but there was resolution there was resolution to the spiritual wrestling around nine months after he died it was it would have been about close to Easter time did something in particular happen or did you just just know that something's changing? I was to the point of desperation because it felt that I was looking into an abyss without God. And I thought, I know he's sovereign. His sovereignty felt harsh to me. So I was wrestling with this. Well, he's sovereign and he gets to pick who his children are. I might be on the outside of that. How do I know? How do I know? It wasn't just the way I was raised in the environment that I was in. I'm the natural cultural, you know, result of that. How do I know what's real? If he was here and looked at me and said, this is how I see you, what would he say? I want to know where I stand with God. And except I was saying that to him over and over again. And at one point I, I thought to myself, and I've done this at different times in life when I've just gotten to an extremity of need, is to say, I'm going to go back to the basic. I'm going to just read it. I'm just going to keep asking you the same question until you answer my question. And it was not okay with me if I was not his child. I couldn't say, well, you're sovereign, whatever's fine with you. It was not okay with me. 
I felt like that was as close to hell as I ever wanted to get. It was just black void and it was horrifying. And I needed to know where I stood with him. And it was Good Friday. I remember I was bathing the children and I was crying out to God and I had to go on some errands and I was just crying, I need to know what's real. You know, do what you said you would do. Show me what's real. I need to know what's real. And it was the day before Easter. I was listening through John. That's what I had gone to. Everyone says, go back to the beginning. I'm going to listen to the book of John. This is the most basic truth. I'm just going to listen to it until he gets through. And somehow, remember, I had not heard from God in all this time after many years of walking with God. And I can remember I was listening. I listened to the audio Bible and I was listening in John and it said, most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And I was terrified. I was losing my life. I was terrified. I was losing my identity. I don't know who, what mother, special needs mom, adoptive mom, human being, advocate for children with special needs. I felt like my identity had been just devastated and crushed. But Jesus said, I must give up my life in order to bear fruit. This is what dying feels like. I am dying. This is what it feels like. That's why I feel like I'm dying. And then the next day, it was Easter Sunday morning. I was again listening in John. I do every morning, just turn my audio Bible on while I'm getting ready for the day. And the, the silence ended. The words came through to me. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. And that felt familiar to me. I knew that. That was the voice of my father talking to me. I had heard it many times in the past. He would just take, and it was his word. I didn't have to doubt whether it was my head. He talked to me again. And it was something I had heard how many times as being as a younger child than I can remember. But that is exactly what I had been asking him for. And I recognized his voice, and it was just enormously reassuring to me. It wasn't the end of the journey, but it was the end of the silence and the end of that feeling of abandonment to, that he was saying to me, my daughter, you do not come into judgment. You have passed from death to life. And then um, the, another verse that during that time, that was very reassuring to me, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So the entire time that I had been feeling so alone and abandoned by God, I was hidden in him the whole time. And that that has never left me. So that's been three and a half years and that sense, it was not an emotion. There were emotions associated with that, but the emotions have come and gone. But it's not an emotion. And my emotions actually probably are not in as good shape as I would have thought four years later. But I don't trust my emotions. And I know what the truth is. And so because of that, there is an underlying peace, not the joy. And I don't always feel close to God like I had before, before all the questions. I don't feel like all of the I's are dotted and all the T's are crossed at this point. I still have a lot more questions than answers. But I'm much more comfortable with the mystery and the ambiguity and much more accepting that that's in God's territory. He's the one in charge of the timing. He, he wants to bring back some sense of joy. He can do that at any time. That's up to him. And I'm okay with that. So there's just an underlying peace now since that time. And it was a very clear end of the tunnel never gone back into that tunnel. Susanna, you are being so transparent and I just can't tell you how much I appreciate that. So real, so very real. You mentioned earlier how important it was to have Heidi in your life. Why don't the two of you talk about that a little bit, what that looked like? It didn't even occur to me till much later that there was, could be a stigma attached to going to therapy. All I knew was that the situation that we were dealing with, with the death of Tommy and the impact on the family and on me, was way beyond anything that I had ever dealt with before. And I was desperate for some kind of help. My brother told me about you, Heidi, and I think you had dealt with, you had done some trauma work with a mutual friend. 
and reached out and God worked it out that we were able to connect only two days later. And looking back from this distance of four years later, I can say without a doubt that if it hadn't been for you right there in the immediate, having a clear head, helping me sort through the issues and going right to the core of the issue and saying the true things that I needed to hear and and just bringing me back to that over and over again. And my husband doing the same thing, just taking what I said and giving me the truth and being a rock, I don't think I would have made it because I know the kind of bad place that I was in. And with the self-blame, I wouldn't have wanted to just keep on walking, keep on living. So um, I don't know if you want to talk about some of the work that you made me do during that Absolutely. time. It was very well, difficult. It's humbling to hear you say that because, yeah, you, as you mentioned, God brought you to me and it's kind of neat how he did that. It, within minutes of getting to know you, it, it was pretty clear uh, that Susanna was a remarkable woman in, in many ways. Her faith was clearly very strong. You can't help but respect what she had taken on and the the children and the needs and just her heart for kids. So it, it didn't take long for that to come through. So uh, it's been such an honor to work with you over this time. But yeah, I can absolutely talk a little bit about the journey that we went through. As you're talking and sharing the story again, I'm viewing a lot of it through a clinical lens of trauma and the complications that that can sometimes bring about. Yeah, this is a, a huge story of grief too, but there was trauma in you being there I think even if you weren't there, there would be an element of trauma, but especially you being there during the moments that Tommy died is extremely traumatic. So in the beginning, uh, Sharon, when we started to work together and when I'm working with a situation like this, we talk a lot about the symptoms of trauma. And, you know, uh, I know that Susanna had a lot of these and other people can relate to them, but I'll just sort of go over them briefly. But, you know, intrusive thoughts about the event that happened, memories, uh, sometimes it's to the extent of what we call a flashback when you're reliving the story over and over again. That can create sleep disturbance and nightmares and things like that. Uh, there's often an avoidance of places or an avoidance of thinking about it. And this event happened in Susanna's home. So that makes it very difficult to avoid and, and, and very complicated. The distorted sense of responsibility that Susanna felt, that's also very typical because she took it to such an extreme in, in blaming herself, which so many people do in situations like this. There was a clear, I mean, obviously, you're going to have um, the emotional disturbance that she had with this being her son. Hypervigilance is another trauma symptom where you're very easily startled, uh, kind of jumpy. You're very much aware of your surroundings, extremely irritable and angry. That's a, a typical symptom of trauma. And so even your anger at yourself and God, you know, we don't know how much that was probably even complicated by the trauma. There's central nervous system reactions to something like this. So it could be really layering on what would already have been there. As you're telling the story, I'm thinking about some of these things that really quite likely were complicating what she, her healing process. I often see attempts to control. It's sort of rooted in the anxiety that comes with trauma, but just trying to control things is often something you will see with somebody that's experienced trauma and issues around control, which is when you see anger and things like that flare up in relationships and things like that. So it's a very complicated story. And some of the ways that you're describing that life has changed for you may be you experiencing this trauma specifically in addition to the immense grief that you're going through. So if you, you know, anyone out there has a friend or a loved one that has been through something like this, educating yourself on trauma could really be helpful in giving empathy to some of those people and, and seeing their reactions uh, through that lens helps you understand why and be able to sit with them and explain that to them that maybe because of what's happened to them, what, because of their experience, that they are reacting the way that they are. Well, I am listening to your story and because of the loss of our own son, Mark, I resonate with some of the grief, uh, but of course, you are unique, I am unique, and we would never say to one another, I know just how you feel. 
uh, bereaved parents get that. I haven't had one bereaved parent say, I know just how you feel, or this is the way everything is going to happen. Even though I desperately wanted somebody to tell me, oh, this is what's going to happen next, and this is how long it's going to take, they wouldn't. And it wasn't until later that I realized how respectful that was for me from them to me. But I think about myself, Mark was our youngest. So the other kids were out of the house. So I was able to really push through spiritually, spend time in the word, you know, even though it didn't mean much to me at first, I knew that's where my nourishment would come from. I knew I had no other hope but that. But I think about your situation where you have a house full of children with desperate needs that you could not step back. And yet this grief has forever changed you. And so I appreciate what uh, Heidi is saying about the trauma that people change from grief and people who love them just want them to be the way they were, to get better and move on and all those weird, horrible things that people who have never grieved say. (laughs) But uh, I think it's important. I think what Heidi just said is so important for people to recognize there's there's, there's a change. You would love to be who you used to be. But then there are some things that you're grateful for what you've learned through that uh, pathway. So can you share some, some of those things, maybe as a means of hope for someone who is struggling right now? It wasn't really till after emerging from that black tunnel that I've described that I just, it began to dawn on me, I am not that same person that I was before. I think so. I think that the grieving overshadowed some of the effects of the trauma because I think it's a lower level of trauma obviously that I dealt with than some people do and it's because I'm not a professional it's difficult for me to tell the difference between post-trauma stress and the ongoing caregiver stress that I deal with all the time sometimes there's some overlap with that but I do remember enduring intense stress even with joy at times before Tommy's life and death in our family and I would not be able now to handle the demands that I did when he was in the family. I'll just run through my little list that I jotted down for you that every, just in the everyday without any unusual circumstances going on, um, I have a difficulty concentrating compared with before. This is all compared with before. Um, I have very much difficult relaxing physically and mentally. I'm very jumpy. I have a difficulty falling asleep and staying asleep. And I have this exaggerated, I don't. I just call it a total stress response to relatively small triggers that'll just be an immediate adrenaline and heart, like stomach is tensed up and my heart's racing and thumping and skipping beats. And I don't know what the clinical term for that kind of thing is. And if there is, if there is a time of crisis, which we have probably this past year, more than in any time since Tommy died, it's been really been tested. We've lost some supports and the needs increased greatly in in some of the children, then the longer that goes on, the more I see things like I start to have nightmares and what I think are probably anxiety attacks that I never even understood before that. And then there are times I will just completely blank out. I might be having a conversation with a professional and all of a sudden I can't even remember what we were talking about. It doesn't come back. It's not just a little blip. Or I'm teaching my child grammar and I can't remember the word for adverb and it's just a complete blank. I can't remember what we were even talking about. Or I'm driving, can't remember how to get to somewhere I've been driving to for 20 years. And even with a GPS, I find myself wandering around lost. So things just start to break down, can't focus, can't eat, can't sleep, can't relax. And it's it's a major battle, but I've learned not to over-spiritualize. I think in the past I would have done that. And now I recognize I'm made of a lot of different things, I've body, soul, spirit, mind, and I've just learned learning to know myself and what my needs are and what do I need to do to be a healthy person, to help myself be a healthy person. And my husband's also gotten very aware of these things and he keeps closed tabs on me and how I'm doing and uh, he's very protective of me and a lot of people depend on me to keep functioning. So when I see the functioning starting to break down, we take that very seriously. We've made drastic changes even with this, in this past year that in the past would have been unthinkable because of where I am now as a person and what my limitations are. Something you said, Heidi, though, I wanted to make a note of this. 
the part about being feeling that you want to control because in that moment you feel like everything is completely out of control and you want to regain some measure of control. I was that's where I was before. I think part of the spiritual journey that I've been on since then, I look now and I think I I know that God God had this in mind. I'm not saying this is the reason, but this is one good thing that has come out of this terrible thing. I had spent my entire lifetime career as a good little girl trying to get every detail perfect, trying to please God, find out what was it, what was the very best, what's the most ideal, the most perfect. My family actually teased me and made fun of me for that. I had done that, pushed myself, bullied myself along to do everything as perfectly as possible, and it didn't stop Tommy from dying. The combination of that, for me, seems to have completely severed that for me, that sense that I am the, you know, my overwhelming sense of being responsible for all the final outcomes, it hasn't come back. Like that, that was, that severed it. So now as I'm walking out my life, I feel a much more of a sense of freedom from condemnation, self-condemnation, or even just this constant sense of taking a selfie with, you know, for God or selfie video. See, I'm trying really hard. See, you know, am I pleasing you? Is this, you know, am I being godly? Um, It's just not, it's not part of my life anymore. So there's just a much more of a sense of less of fear of a failure and more of a hunger to know what grace is. And I still can't say that I exactly understand what grace looks like or what it exactly is, but I do know that how I was functioning before was not grace. And I do know that I, now I am in a state of seeing myself in terms of my weakness and need and brokenness and need of grace and want to know how to live that every day myself as well as understand it from God. It's so interesting to hear how God took this maybe one area of potentially a weakness prior to and with the complications of trauma and the issues around control, sort of brought that issue to a head and done some work in that area. But yeah, a lot of what I think you're describing is a lot of the trauma. And that's even with you seeking help and getting help, you know, in in the work that I do, after we talk about trauma early on, and we sort of try to stabilize things, one of the next steps in in therapy is talking about the awful day, you know, talking about the traumatic event and doing what we call memory work. So that's sort of the crux of therapy work is around that and then processing those memories, correcting unhealthy or distorted thoughts about those memories, and just sort of leaning into the awful details of that does something in the brain in not avoiding it then in memory. It kind of takes the sting away from the thoughts. I mean, it's still an awful, awful thought, but there's something in that and sitting in a safe room with a safe person and being able to speak the words that is therapeutic. So you even got that treatment and you got it early on. And I would encourage anybody out there to seek treatment as I think you would, Susanna, because I do think it's helpful. But I also love the reality that you're painting of still four years later, still feeling that. I mean, we see combat veterans who many, many years, you know, have the PTSD and and are still dealing with the way it it really chemically changes us and, and how that impacts so much functioning relationships and so many different things. So after we did memory work, we did uh, spend, I think a balk of our time really dealing with what you already painted very, um, you know, transparently uh, the pain, the level of pain in, in wrestling through with God, all of those questions that you had. And, And I remember during that time, I had you, as I often do, I had you write a script. We had many, many lies and many, many thoughts that were unhealthy that you were struggling with on a regular basis. And I think with you, I probably had you do many scripts in in one area of thinking, you know, then I'll have you write five or six truths that correspond to that, that you can almost commit to memory things that you find, either words of a friend or, or words in scripture or just something that pops out at you that, that really helped you ease some of that pain or challenge whatever lie you were dealing with. And, and I believe you found that to be a helpful process. 
It was very hard to do. And there were some of those cognitive distortions, those lies that I was believing that I couldn't figure out what was the truth that was corresponding to that. And I had to get help from somebody else because I just, I felt like I was trying to convince myself of something. Okay, you're telling me this is true, but it really didn't feel true to me at all. I felt like, well, it's really obvious um, that it was my fault or it was really obvious that I had failed or like everybody knows that. They're just not saying it. You know what I'm trying to, I was, that's the place that I was in. So it was tremendously difficult, but it was the right thing to do with me because of forcing me to think it through and forcing me to write it down helps me to process it. And then another thing that you did was you encouraged me to fight back against the enemy, telling me those thoughts, like that's depression talking or that's the enemy talking. You can fight back. That was a really helpful thing for me to do that I wasn't just, you know, I felt like I, I was smashed at the bottom of the pit into a million bleeding pieces of agony and um, completely helpless. So for you to tell me you can fight back, fight back with the truth. Reminding people that that's really satan i mean in a nutshell that's that's truth but it also helps to just separate from that you know we tend to integrate with our thoughts so the more we are able to to separate and sort of speak to it as a separate entity is really helpful so that's part of what that technique is about um, but I think, you know, as, as Christians, we know that those lies, we know directly where they, they're coming from. So it's also true. So I did. I was able to chew them out several times and say, you leave me and my family alone. And, you know, we belong to Jesus and you have to, st-, you know, and it, it was basically, I don't think I would have thought of doing that <laughs> except for what you told me to do. And that was very helpful to me at, at different times. My My family has a a pretty strong history of uh, depression and anxiety and even some uh, suicidal thoughts and some suicide attempts on my side of the family. So I'm always very aware of that. I have a tendency in that direction to you know fall prey to the negative self-talk and get stuck in that swirl. So I, I just it was very good for me to be given weapons to fight back against those and real, realize how much of my day I was spending in negative self-talk. You know, that's part of taking captive your your thoughts that God tells us to do <laughs> for a reason. As you can imagine, I learned a lot from Susanna in our work together. It was an amazing experience, really. She's a very godly woman, and it was humbling, really, just to be a, a piece of her, her journey. As we're wrapping up our, our conversation, Susanna, have you found resolution or healing since the death of your son, that uh, is tangible and has made a difference in the way that you view life now? I want to tell about one of them because, yes, I have. But I want to tell one because I do think in mental pictures. Uh, when my oldest son rebuked me and said, Mom, you have the wrong picture of God, I don't know where it came from, but I have a different mental picture of this whole story now. And it's of God, like a good surgeon, taking his scalpel and making that incision that slash all the way down through right through my life and my being not in order to simply heal that devastating initial incision but in order to reveal diseased areas underneath that had been deeply hidden and needed his skillful work Thank you, Susanna, so much for painting such vivid pictures for us of your journey and your transparency and your honesty. And that the Lord, even though he seemed distant, as you said, that you were hidden in Christ. And that is a powerful picture of hope, I think, for anyone who is listening. And also, I would encourage you to, um, listener, to be like Susanna and to run toward the Lord with your hands open, with your questions, with your doubts. Don't give up. Don't quit. As you listen to Susanna, it was a long time before she found that tangible hope that she so longed to experience, but she didn't stop running to Him. And that is what we want to encourage you to do, is to keep running toward Him. And if there's anything that we can do to help you at markinc.org, please contact us. You can go to our website at markinc.org. 
where, as I said earlier, you'll find many stories like Susanna's that offer help and hope to hurting people. These resources are free, and our hope is that each one of them would help turn your heart toward Jesus. You can contact us personally, and we will do whatever we can to help you better understand the Father in Heaven who loves you so much. You have been listening to a resource produced by Mark Inc. Ministries. My name is Sharon Betters, and I want to thank Heidi Scott and Susanna Musser for being here with us today.